Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast, dear listener. I'm really excited about this one. This is probably one of the most fun episodes I've ever recorded. And it's also so ram-packed full of knowledge, little nuggets of wisdom, things you can take away and learn straight away from the amazing guest, Dr. Sophie Mort today. So we're going to talk you through how to be human, how to be okay with being human. And that's based on Sophie's new book, A Manual for Being Human, which is out now. Just came out a couple of weeks ago when you listen into this. So I've actually picked her brains on quite a lot of different topics here um, because she's a fellow clinical psychologist like myself. And we're just having a really good chat about lots of the struggles of being human starting from our childhood and needing to feel safe and soothed and secure and seen in our childhood and also what happens if we then experience aversive events like bullying in our adolescent years when we face you know identity building what happens with us when we are facing things from the media putting pressure on us to be perfect to be thinner to be slimmer to be prettier to be perfect So we talk about all of these coping strategies that we use as a way to manage our emotions. And some of them don't actually help and they make the emotional state worse. So we'll talk to you about what to do instead, how to be curious rather than furious about the emotions that you experience as part of being human. So I'm going to introduce you to my guest. But I also really want you to be aware of that I'm giving away a little freebie today. I got inspired by the fact that I guided Dr. Soph through a little self-compassionate break exercise before we started recording to help both of us just get into the frame of mind of talking about quite serious things and giving ourselves a little chance to recharge, slow down and give ourselves a break. So if you want to download a recording of what I guided Sophie through, which she called Divine, then go to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash break. That's the thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash break. And now let's introduce my guest. Dr. Soph is a clinical psychologist and author of the book A Manual for Being Human. She is passionate about taking psychology out of the therapy room to overcome the barriers stopping people accessing the information they need to have good mental health. She has helped thousands manage their emotional well-being by sharing her psychological knowledge in A Manual for Being Human on Instagram, her blog, and through her online private practice. Dr. Soph is an expert for the mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect, and has been featured in publications like The Times, The Telegraph, Vice Magazine, Girlboss, Psych Central, Teen, Vogue, and Glamour. So let's welcome Dr. Soph. Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast, Sophie. It's so good to have you here. And just for full transparency, we have just done a little mini meditation before we started to just give ourselves a self-compassionate break, which is just always so nourishing. So for anyone listening to this, you can also get this as a free download uh, at the end of this episode. So 
Welcome, Sophie. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And that break that we just did was divine. I'm glad to hear that. You said it was the most relaxed you felt in weeks. And I think we've all have that feeling of pressure building up at times like a pressure cooker. We need a bit of a release. Yeah, it's so true. And that's why you're here, because you're what we want to talk about, how hard it is to be human at times, how much pain and suffering we go through, and that's the, the darkness of life, and also how we can tap into more of the light and what we can do to help ourselves. And you've written such a beautiful book, uh, which helps to have that sort of toolkit, you know, giving you a, a manual on how to be human, basically. So that's, that's why I invited you onto the podcast to talk more about your book. And we have lots of questions kind of going across the lifespan of, of our lives because there are different challenges and different life stages. So I want to ask you a bunch of questions about that. But before we get to that, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about you? You know, who is Dr. Soph? Well, so I go by many names. Um, Dr. Soph is one of them. Dr. Sophie Mort is another. And just Sophie or Soph is plenty. <laughs> um, I am a clinical psychologist. And I... I'm trying or working to take psychology out of the therapy room and get it into people's lives, ideally before they're struggling, making psychology accessible and understandable. Because what I realized quite a while ago is that for many of us, we don't seek help or get the information that we need until we're really struggling. And no one should have to wait until they're struggling and feel like they're in the dark to access the information that could help them understand themselves, to feel seen and soothed, and that would help them move forwards. So that's quite a passionate purpose there of, of taking the psychology out of the therapy room and reaching more people. And before we started recording today, we talked about your platform and, and how much you're doing on platforms like Instagram and on you know, things you're sharing on your website to help people understand this and to demystify therapy in some mm -hmm. ways. So that's a really, really honorable purpose and passion. And we're going to talk more about that because obviously the podcast is called Pause, Purpose, Play. So we're going to talk about your purpose a bit more, but let's think a little bit more about your fantastic book that's just come out. Uh, when this episode hits, it's been out for a couple of weeks, I think. So how are you feeling about it coming out? <laughs> I mean, it's very hard to put words to how I feel. You've had a book out, so I'm imagining maybe we'll share some of this experience, but let me know if, you, if this resonates at all. I think when you write a book, it's such a huge task. You know, I wrote a manual for being human, which, as you say, covers the whole lifespan, starting with the first breath and leaves really, I think, no stone unturned. So I started writing during a pandemic in lockdown where a lot of us were exhausted and overwhelmed anyway. And it was such a mammoth task that when I finished it, I was quite burned out. So I took a break, took a breather, recouped. And then once, once you finished writing the book, you're then going through rounds of edits and then you're recording your audio book and then you're doing the press and it's really a nonstop train. And so, you know, I haven't really had chance to pause since the book has been out. However, my general feeling is deep gratitude. I think um, in the UK, we don't really get taught um, to be proud of ourselves. We're often actually shown tall poppy syndrome. Do you know what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Right. The idea of someone grows too big, um, we should cut them down. And so I think one of the things that was 
quite a surprising experience for me, I suppose, was before the book was coming out, I felt very exposed, very vulnerable that this story was going to be out there. Because this book doesn't just talk about psychology, I also share a bit of myself. So I felt vulnerable and exposed and also terrified, I suppose, of how my friends and family might respond to me if I was to show pride, if this book, you know, if this book was to do well. And so I know it sounds silly, but just people have poured in so much love so much support and I never imagined that they would be there for me in such a way so I feel deep gratitude to everyone who has been there with me Mm -hmm. and I think that's where we also see the power of our support networks that when we do something you know a mammoth task like publishing a book seeing the support from loved ones receiving flowers and the you know having a shrine built for you (laughs) that I saw (laughs) on your Instagram actually that can be really, you know, a really nice acknowledgement of all your efforts and your achievements. But also equally, there will be some low points, you know, feeling the ebbs and the flows there of your energy, protecting mm-hmm. your energy and, you know, knowing that you are now in that stretchy phase, which comes from launching a book. And there's a lot of people wanting your time mm. and, you know, uh, showing up in the press and talking about the book. It's a really stretchy phase for most authors. And I think that can be hard to understand when we just see the sort of the glamour of it like oh published author or bestseller or whatever but yeah. like we discussed before and we don't write books to make money um no. you don't get paid well from writing a book no. it's just not how it works no I, yes I mean I'm exhausted you know I between every session so um I did a live on Instagram an hour before I met you and in that hour in between I lay in my room just basically in the dark in silence breathing because I'm having to decompress constantly to keep my energy levels high. And just in case anyone's listening, thinking someone made a shrine for her, just for some context, my housemate <laughs> put all of the flowers. I was given so many beautiful flowers by so many people. All of the flowers around our fireplace and put my book in the middle. So it's <laughs> it looks like a shrine. So it's gorgeous, but yeah. Well, we all have these different ways of, of honoring and acknowledging it. You know, I've got mine um on a little sort of stand on my piano is where my book is sitting and underneath it is uh, a little pencil or a, a pen and a pen a pencil case uh that my sister sent to me which is engraved saying the author who changed a thousand relationships oh that's nice yeah that's cool isn't it i'm very close to it now as well we have almost at a thousand copies sold of the lasting connection Ooh. so very, very pleased. So it's, yes, that's, I guess that's where we start our journey of seeing, you know, the passion and purpose you've poured into this book, which is absolutely beautiful and fantastic. And it's easy to read and is backed by scientific findings. You know, you scattered throughout with, with references. So if anyone is thinking that you just made some shit up, you did not. And I think that's the beauty <laughs> of psychology, that we are scientists, practitioners, that we put things into practice, but we base it on evidence from research. So I want to ask you a bunch of things about the book, obviously. So let's dive in and think a little bit about some of these parts of of the book here. So I wonder, the million dollar question, you know, why do we struggle so much with being human and making sense of how we feel? Because we simply aren't taught how to understand ourselves. I mean, there are many other reasons, like the world is incredibly stressful. But if you think about the fact that most of us are now raised to believe that happiness is the only emotion that we're meant to strive for, And that for many of us, when we were showing emotions, when we were little, we were told to chin up, you know, pull ourselves together. Many of us try to cling to or strive for happiness, criticize ourselves then when it goes away or when our emotions fluctuate. 
and then have zero tools to manage when anxiety, fear, anger, envy, or another totally understandable emotion arises. So I believe in a way we've been set up to fail. We go into school and we're taught sin, cos, and tan, something I've never used, but we're not taught how to relate. We're not taught how to build deep relationships or to share and ask for what we need. And we aren't taught what our emotions are or what panic is or how to cope when these things inevitably come knocking at our door. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's why we're seeing a difference now in, in the next generation of children. You know, we can see it sort of sneaking into even children's TV programs now. You know, for me, as a four-year-old, I can see him being taught things that I was not taught when I was four. There's a um, an emotional vocabulary coming mm. that wasn't there when you and I were little, but it's still it's it's still lots of work to do. And I think that's why your book is beautiful in helping us to navigate the highs and the lows of being human, the light and the dark, that we cannot just strive for the happiness. So tell me a little bit about kind of the one of the first bits of of the book. You know, we're thinking about childhood. What does it mean? to feel safe, soothed, seen, and secure in our childhood? Ooh, so that's actually a Daniel Siegel idea. Mm -hmm. When we come out into the world, our brain is roughly, roughly a third developed. As in, it's going to take until you're roughly 25 for your brain to be fully wired together. And in that first kind of year or so, your brain is adapting to the environment that you are in. And what all babies need um, and this is, a, as I say, Dan Siegel quote. So what we all need is to be safe, seen, soothed and secure. So safe as in our environment and the people around us do not endanger us. Seen as in, I don't just mean looked at. I mean, imagine your parent or caregiver is like a mother bird and they see you, they see your emotions and much like a mother word, bird gobbling up, pre-digesting, pre-chewing a worm and feeding it back to their baby, your caregiver hopefully sees your emotional internal experience, makes sense of it for you and feeds it back, such as, oh, you're crying. That's because you hurt your knee and it feels painful. Don't worry. What we need to do is X and Y. So the child knows, oh, this feeling is pain. Oh, this experience is crying. I am feeling sad, but there are things we can do about it. Soothed. So that is when a parent brings your emotional state back down to something of calm. And secure. This is to do with our attachments. So this is when a caregiver is able to effectively meet our needs as they arise, making us know that other people can be there for us and want to be. Children who've grown up having those experiences of where their emotional needs have been met with validation, with calm, with I see you, I hear you, I, it's understandable. And having that linking together of this is what's happened, this is how you feel physically, this is how you feel emotionally, and this is what we're going to do about it. How does that then help us to cope with being human and coping with managing our emotions as adults? Well, firstly, if you have all of those things, your brain is able to develop in an almost like a relaxed state. It is not on high alert for danger. So children who grow up in neglect or around people or atmospheres that are dangerous, their brain will keep them safe by developing to be hypervigilant, always on alert for what could go wrong. So it could preempt that danger and get you to safety. So the first thing is if you have all those th four things, 
hopefully you won't be hypersensitive to threat. Your nervous system will be regulated. The next thing is you might have a secure attachment style. So the idea that other people can be there for you and you're deserving of, and worthy of love. Your relational blueprint will mean that when you meet new people, you are not overwhelmed by it. It also means you have your first coping skill, which is an internalized image of someone who, even when they're not there, reminds you that you can cope. So there's many, many positive outcomes of being all four of those things we just described. So that's, if someone has had those four things and they've kind of made it past their toddler years, preschool years and make it into school, and then we layer that up with some aversive experiences, say for instance, adolescents experiencing bullying, how does that impact on us? How does that shape our identity if we are being bullied? Well, bullying can happen at any age. But I think the important thing about anything aversive happening in adolescence is that this is the period where we are starting to create a central story about who we are when we are separate from our family. We are developing our identity. So bullying at any age has negative effects. But if when you're developing your identity, people are calling you names, are hurting you or harming you, you internalize those words as part of your narrative. So for example, let's say someone's uh, critical about your weight, your sexuality. This is obviously going to cause extreme distress. You might after a while start to believe the words of the bullies, particularly if no one steps up and tells them to stop. You might think if there are, you know, if there are bystanders who do nothing, you might think, oh, I must deserve this. You might then internalize those words and use them against yourself. When I was young, for example, when I was a teenager, I was bullied for being extremely thin and for being flat chested, as I was so kindly called by my teenage peers. And for a long time, and those are the nice words, by the way, of what they said. And for a long time, my inner critic, that negative self-talk, would say the exact words of the bullies, but in my own voice back towards myself. So... There are lots of really negative outcomes that can arise when you are bullied and when no one supports you. And I wonder if that's also layered up even more if you've not had those four S's from your childhood, if you've not had your primary caregiver provide you with a secure attachment, thinking that they are going to be there for you, they are going to be there to soothe you and you are safe. If you layer that up with adolescent experience then of bullying, where you're trying to form your identity and that leads to even more of an inner, inner critical voice and more of shame, perhaps. So it's really interesting of how that layers up. 100%. You know, if you've had a really good experience of people being there for you, showing you love and acceptance when you're little, the effect of the bullies will be different to having had the experience of no one being there for you and then people bullying you on top of this. So it's almost like I knew it. I, I'm not worth anything. I knew it all along. Other people are just confirming that. Yeah. So I guess that when we then think about when we work with this in therapy, that there's a lot of sense of worthlessness, a lot of shame, a lot of uh, low self-esteem uh, that can lead us feeling anxious. And like you've kind of talked about, you know, attachment styles as well, that we obviously primed to respond 
in our adult relationships uh, based on how we also were treated as children. I wonder if we can think a little bit more about that. You know, for even if we have had everything provided in terms of our emotional stability, there's an attachment there, we can still feel that that sense of worthlessness or not good enough when we are adults facing the media. And you write about that in the book of how social media and uh, other channels that kind of impact on our, on our well-being almost like erodes that anyway, mm-hmm. kind of the negative effects of that. So I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about that or how we can manage all these influences and still feel good enough. Mm, I mean, yes, so many people get through their childhood having had a beautiful relationship, feeling, you know, worthy and lovable. But then they're bombarded, for example, by media, the social media and the films that they see, where almost everyone is, in inverted commas, perfect. You know, we are sold this image of perfection every day. And what's interesting is quite often the people in the magazines that we are being shown, they actually don't look the way that we see them. They are also lit well. They have been edited, photoshopped. Yet every day we see these images and our brain internalizes, I'm meant to look like that if I am going to be worthy and enough. And so the pressure to be perfect in society is having such a strong effect that research papers are showing recently that perfectionism, this fear that we are not enough unless we act, are seen as and perform perfectly, is rife in society right now. And when we feel the need to act perfectly, we can feel good as long as we are performing at a near perfect pace. The issue with perfectionism is it equips us with an unbelievable error detection system. We can find fault in something that other people would deem as absolutely flawless. The moment we find an error, an image pops up in our mind of, oh my word, they're going to see the real me, they won't love me. Anxiety floods through our body. And suddenly we work harder trying to achieve more. And this is how burnout happens because we work harder and harder for an unattainable goal because perfection isn't real. And then we often end up burning out leading to our worst fears. So that's one of the things. There's also comparison, compare and despair. And I talk in the book about how to use that to your advantage. But in terms of how you manage, I suppose, firstly, get really well acquainted with what Photoshop looks like. Um, There's research that shows actually that the more literate you are around editing, so the more able you are at spotting images that have been doctored, the less it'll affect your self-esteem because you're able to see the images and say, ah, I know that's not real. Limit the amount of social media exposure that you have each day. Unfollow the people that make you feel miserable. You know, if you think social media is meant to be something that adds to your life, not takes away, you don't need to follow everyone. Surround yourself with people who are real and who aren't afraid to be flawless. Recognize there is no such thing as perfect. The magazines are trying to sell you something. They're trying to make money off your fears. And then if the perfectionism is still rife, choose to do one thing today imperfectly and survive it. So for example, maybe you're going to leave a typo in an email to your boss, or maybe you're going to burn the bacon and serve it without explaining to someone why you did it. Expose yourself bit by bit to your fear of being imperfect. Show yourself you can cope and that fear will lessen. I think that's where we then have to translate the 
you know, the link between our thoughts and our feelings and our behavior, that actually if we take action, embracing those imperfections, doing something on purpose that is imperfect, it also ripples back into the way we think about ourselves, the way we feel about ourselves. And it's like a back and forth, back and forth between all of those things. And yet another example of things we're not taught in school. We're not taught the difference between a thought and a feeling. What is a thought? What is a feeling? So obviously we can talk about that for ages, but actually showing you know the listeners now how how you can have these concrete steps of limiting media exposure by becoming more savvy becoming more aware of what's real and what's not real and i find that really difficult with some of the filters that exist on instagram these days and things that you can do in apps that's just remarkable whereas when i used to um used to do fashion photography I model photography as a hobby when I was training to be a psychologist. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, donkeys years ago. And that's mentioned on a different episode with Amanda Thomas, who's a fashion photographer, where we talked about the perception of beauty and what happens when we uh, apply filters to things, when we change people's bone structures and things. And the reason why I stopped was because I was being pushed into doing alterations that I didn't feel comfortable doing. Yeah. You know, limit, like, lessening the circumference of someone's thigh oh and I just said I'm, I'm, I'm done it's not this is not what this is about this is not about capturing beautiful photography anymore this is about feeding yeah. unrealistic expectations on women to be small yeah and I worry that we're losing sight of what people really look like because we're being exposed to these images all the time and a really interesting number is um you know, hashtag no filter or, yeah. yeah, so when people are supposedly posting images that have no filter, haven't been edited in any way, research has re- recently shown that 12% of those hashtag no filter images do have, ha- um, do have filters and have been edited. So even when we're being told, no, you're looking at something natural, it is sometimes not the case. And the human eye struggles to make the dif- to spot the difference. So yes. You can have a wonderful childhood, you can have a wonderful adulthood, but the media you consume each day can still contribute to the idea that you need to be something else in order to be enough. Mm-hmm. And that's the pursuit of happiness and pursuit of perfection, that once we've done all of these things, we've burnt all these calories, we have uh, made all of these friends, we shared all of these things on our Instagram stories, then we'll be there and we'll be, we'll be done, we'll be happy. But why don't we stay there? You know, thinking about all the negative emotions you also described, which are part of being human. Mm. How can people cope with those negative emotions? How can people learn to face and tolerate their emotions even when they're unpleasant? Well, firstly, learn what they are. I think, you know, we're talking about what we're not taught in school. And to be honest, most people that talk about emotions now still have never been given the basic information of what emotions are. Not their fault society's fault for the fact that we've stigmatized mental health for so long. Um, So firstly, know what your emotions are. Know that they are physical sensations that arise in your body in response to what your brain predicts you need to do. So if it finds something that it thinks will help you thrive, such as a delicious meal, a sexy potential partner, um, or a friend, suddenly feel-good hormones will surge through your body, causing you to want to turn towards it. If you come across something that, you, that your brain thinks would endanger you, such as if you step out into the road and you hear a car, or you see someone who has recently insulted you, your body instead floods with stress hormones and adrenaline, preparing you to run or to fight so that you can survive the danger. 
So all of our emotions are useful. There is no such thing as a good or a bad emotion. Yes, happiness feels so much better than some of the rest. But once you know that all of your emotions have purpose, suddenly those negative ones, we have a different relationship to them. Suddenly we can allow them in and we can get curious about them. And then we can take it to the next level and say, hmm, is this emotion telling me something that is true or not so true? So for example, often when we're anxious, our brain will tell us that all sorts of things could happen that probably won't. And uh, Brené Brown actually has a really lovely statement, I think, that summarizes this, which is the story I am telling myself right now. So for example, if we go back to the media, if you look at a magazine article and your brain says, I don't look like that, therefore I have failed. I am unlovable, I am stupid. This is a story we're telling ourselves. You say, the story I am telling myself right now is that I am unlovable. And then we get that space between ourselves and that thought. Yes, and we can start challenging it. We can start to recognize these are words, not realities. So understand what your emotions are, which is chapter six of my book. (laughs) Recognize sometimes they will try to trick you. Learn to separate yourself from your thoughts, for example, using the Brené Brown statement. And if you're still overwhelmed, you can share with friends or use a trusty coping skill to bring that emotion down. And I think those are really good quick tips that you actually scattered throughout the book. And I wonder, it's so funny how when we are, you know, actually showing up in a vulnerable way, you know, sharing things like you did in your book, you, you put snippets of you in there and talking about it on a podcast, I just noticed that little giggle of you like, chapter six of my book. <laughs> it's almost like that even triggers an emotion right there that oh, I must, must not talk about it, must not name drop chapter six of my book. Isn't it funny how this shows yeah. up and hooks us? Yes, no, 100%. And you're, if you think about the fact that your brain is scanning the environment four times a second for anything that's changed, these emotions, these physical sensations that are meant to prepare you to act are coming continuously. This is why our emotions fluctuate. And emotions are meant to be fleeting, right? They're meant to cause you to take action in some way. Because so many of us fear our emotions, misinterpret our emotions, or try and push them away, we then often start unintentionally a vicious cycle that keeps those emotions around or makes them transform into something that feels even worse. And can you give some examples of those things that people do which are intended to keep emotions at bay and unfortunately has that you know paradoxical effect of keeping them around for longer can you give some examples of what that would be yeah I mean how many times do you try to just stuff up an emotion I've been at work for example um, when I used to work in an office and been really angry and just tried to be like I'm fine I'm fine and then gone home and taken it out on the next person have you ever done that yep Yeah. The other thing is, I think as Brits, we're very good at being passive aggressive because we haven't been taught how to be effectively angry. And if you imagine that anger is energy to, you know, it's meant to be the energy that turns you towards the threat so you can fight against it. When we feel angry, it's like pumping air into a tire. If you burst with anger, it's like bursting the tire, all the air comes out at the same time. If you're a Brit who's being passive aggressive, it's like a slow puncture in the tire. And it just goes on for hours and hours, spraying a low level of rage everywhere. So those are two examples. But other common ones are, for example, taking control. A lot of us are so afraid of certain emotions coming up inside ourselves 
we try and control everything in our environment and in our schedule. And life feels good as long as there's no unpredictability. The issue is the world is unpredictable and people are unpredictable. I mean, look at 2020. We never predicted a pandemic. If you try and cope with your difficult emotions by ensuring they can never arise, when the unpredictable happens, it's like a forest fire spreading through your body as you no longer have anything to put the fire out with. And I think that's where we then attempting to control and leads us to actually feel more and out of control. Wow. It's, 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 a, it's a kind of a losing battle. It's like Sisyphus stone, isn't it? You're rolling it up the hill, making a lot of efforts to keep it up there. And as soon as you let go, it keeps rolling back down again. So yeah. it's, a, it's a pointless task. Yeah. Uh, whereas if we surrender into it, putting the stone down, thinking this is not outside of my influence, uh, we expend a lot less energy on yeah. doing those things. I love the Sisyphus example. Exactly, exactly. And it's not about not taking control, right? We do know that people who feel like they have control, as in the ability to have an effect and steer their ship in their life, do bounce back from stresses and strains much quicker than people who feel like they have no control, no ability to make an impact in their own lives. It's just the fact that we need, <laughs> we need flexibility, right? We need to be able to allow emotions to arise we need to be able to feel like we have some ability to control what happens in our lives. But maybe that is not through taking control. It is through example, knowing that you would be able to do a breathing exercise, say you felt anxious, a grounding exercise, should your emotions feel like a runaway train. Absolutely. And I, I guess it's we're getting into some linguistic terms here. But as authors, we might nitpick around words, but I think it's really important to understand that control is not all good or all bad. Yeah. Nothing is all good or all bad. It's about the function it serves for you. When you feel more like you are, you have power. You know, yeah. I, I feel like I have influence. I can, uh, I can impact and and affect what's happening to me. That is obviously psychologically really damaging. If we think we don't have that, then we get powerlessness or helplessness, which yeah. is really linked to then depressive states. So what you're describing here is much more about knowing when to surrender and when to step up and take action. So that sense of when to accept and when to change. Um, so that's a really, you know, it's like a million dollar question that I haven't figured out when to do it, when, when to let go and when to, uh, to take charge. But I guess that's the benefit of acknowledging how hard it is to be human that none of us have, have this figured out, even with, you know, our doctorates in psychology and whatnot. Um, we are still as human as, as the, the rest of, of people around us. We just have a little bit more knowledge of the mind. And does that show up for you as well, that, you know, kind of these moments where you're inevitably just really human and then you catch yourself like, oh, I was trying to control everything. Yeah. How's, that, how's that working out for me? Yeah, no, 100%. I often, often fall into old traps that I didn't realize um, I was still, <laughs> still able to do. But um, essentially, if... Do you, you know the anxiety equation, right? The idea that anxiety mm -hmm. arises when we overpredict the danger we're in and underpredict the resources we have to cope, or when the actual threat of the scenario outweighs our ability to cope. I think for me, because I know there's no such thing really as a truly healthy or unhealthy coping skill, or the right or wrong coping skill. I think for me, the idea that sometimes I might pick the wrong coping skill, as in I'll take control when I should be being accepting, doesn't worry me because. I know, bottom line, that irrespective of the threat I feel like I'm in, I have multiple resources to draw from. 
I have friends and community to speak to. I have a therapist who is there for me. I know how to do breathing exercises. I use yoga in a way that grounds me. So I think being human is yes about recognizing we won't always get it right and that's totally fine, but that we're aiming hopefully for a point where we have in our emotional coping skill toolkit enough ways to respond that we know at the end of the day, whatever happens, we will find a way to survive it. And speaking of not always getting it right, I mean, you do talk about some some of the really nastier parts of being human. You know, sometimes in psychology, it's called, you know, our shadow parts or our darker side of the moon, the things that are part of being human that we're not always so proud of. So I wonder if we can talk a little bit about some of those things like prejudice, microaggressions and intersectionality and how we can how we can navigate these difficult aspects of being human with self-awareness and self-correction. So we soften these things, become aware of them, rather than meeting them with self-criticism, being hard on ourselves, shaming ourselves. What, what are your thoughts around those aspects? Well, I think what's really important is that microaggressions and prejudice of all forms are being discussed more and more nowadays. I think psychology historically has tried to always place problems within people, as in, oh, you're anxious, it's because you don't know how to manage anxiety or it's to do with your thinking rather than maybe there's prejudice in the world that we need to acknowledge and fight against in order to stop you feeling this way Um, and to support you or like to send you in the direction of a, a group of people that you can campaign with so that you use your voice to make change. And so I think we're in a really good place where people are talking about it more and more and psychology are recognizing the politics of mental health. I think in terms of or speaking to your comment about self-criticism, I think if we can all get more comfortable with the fact that we're all going to say things at some point that will offend someone, and that we are always trying to do our best, if we get called out for saying something that is sexist, for example, if we are told we are said something that is prejudiced, if we are able to, rather than collapse, see this as an opportunity for learning, apologizing, and reconnecting, we as a society as a whole will be able to move forwards and actually minimize the level of prejudice that we see in the world that is causing people's distress and make actual change. Which is easier said than done, isn't it? When also a big part of being human means that we feel shame when we do things that are outside of our value system or acting in the way that we think is going to be perceived as negative by mm-hmm. others. So when we do get called out, there is a discomfort with that that people have Ooh. to sit with and tolerate and own that actually I, I, I messed this up. I got this wrong. Yeah. I was ignorant or I didn't have the knowledge of that. And I think that's a really difficult thing of continuing that learning and having an open mind to all the things that you don't know that you don't know. And when yeah. you get called out to actually, what can I do differently? And that's where we've been coming back to what you said earlier about uh, feeling safe and secure and soothed rather than thinking, I knew it, I'm worthless, I'm a failure. It's really hard to step up and learn and self-correct when we have a very strong inner critical voice, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing that's really important here is shame is normally that feeling you get which says, I am bad. I, as a whole entity, I am bad. And I think when that emotion floods us, there are obviously, you know, it's much more complicated than this. But something that can be really useful, two things actually, is one, remembering shame will tell you that this is everything about who you are, even though you've lived a really long life where you've done lots of brilliant things connected with so many people. 
So the first thing is to zone out. And remember, this is just one moment, one drop in the ocean of who you are, and it doesn't tell you who you are. The second thing is to remember that these singular actions, these mistakes, these things that arise from not knowing, it's the action that is something you want to change, not you. Guilt says that thing I did was wrong or was bad, or I need to change it or learn from it. Shame says I am bad. If we can switch to, oh, that thing wasn't ideal, it takes the pressure off. It stops us from descending into this collapsed state of I am a failure, I am flawed, and helps switch us into a position where we can learn. Mm, Because shame makes us want to hide and guilt makes us move towards repair. Exactly. That's so lovely put. So lovely. So well put. Yes. Thank you. I'm a very lovely person. (laughs) I can say that openly on a podcast and only notice a tiny bit of shame and a little bit of that poppy flower thing happening. It's funny how that is such a cultural thing as well of how psychology now becoming more aware of the not just intrapersonal things going on within you as a person, but also the interpersonal and the you know the the things surrounding us those things like you know obviously I've had guests on in the past talking about feminist therapy understanding the patriarchy and all of these things oppression and microaggressions all of these things happening around us will have an impact on our mental health and it's not fair to just go that's to do with your thoughts and your interpretations obviously sometimes um I mean this is, I'm sure this is one of those urban myths that's not actually true but I don't know if you ever heard that uh, Sigmund Freud was supposedly have said that if you start to think that you are not good enough or if you think bad things about yourself, sometimes you'd have to have to just ask yourself if you're surrounded by assholes. Um, so there is a there's an element of truth in that that if we are constantly fed, jokes aside, fed messages from people around us that are corrosive to our self-esteem that shoot us down, that that will have a negative impact on how we think about ourselves. And it's not fair to just say, how can we within you change that? It might then be about the toxic environment around you. Yeah. And that's one of the important things about a manual for being human, right? The coping skills section isn't just about the things that you can do with yourself. It's about, for example, creating community, campaigning against prejudice or anything that you feel is important to you. It talks about volunteering, you know, supporting others, because the things that will help aren't always the traditional mental health skills that we see and hear about every day. So do you want to give some more examples of, of those coping tips? Because I think that's something that the listeners often want, something concrete. Like, what do I do then if I realize that life is this hard and I have all of these mixed emotions and the light and dark? What do I do with all this stuff? So what are your best sort of, there's no quick tip that fixes everything, mm. but what are your best sort of highlighters? from your book for people to cope with their emotions? Curiosity is the simplest way of uh, putting a lot of it, as in using mindfulness to find a way to be able to be present with whatever is here. But for many of us, that is actually too difficult in the beginning. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, you might want to start with something like the 54321 technique. So for example, when our emotions feel like a runaway train, sometimes what we need to do is look outside of ourselves if we want to apply the brakes. So with 54321, you simply look around you and you say five things that you can see. So for example, right now, I can see a sofa, I can see a light, right? Five of them. Say four things you can touch and then actually touch them. So I can touch this table, it's smooth. Then you say three things you can hear, two things that you can smell, and one thing you can taste. 
And you can do that as many times as you want in order to feel soothed. You could also <laughs> dunk your face in ice. I know it sounds quite uh, undesirable if you're already feeling overwhelmed, but when our nostrils are covered, when we submerge our face into water, particularly cool water, it triggers the mammalian dive reflex, which basically means all of the kind of energy and blood that's been sent to your limbs in the fight or flight stress response goes back to your heart. Your breathing slows dramatically. So it's the inverse of the stress response. And your body is shocked into feeling calm instantly. And that can stop a panic attack, for example, in its tracks. So I always say, if you're feeling overwhelmed, always start with grounding and build from there. So then you'd put a breathing exercise maybe on top. Then mm. maybe you'd add mindfulness. You'd add mm. compassion. You'd add journaling. You'd maybe do some work around your values. So what's actually important to you so you know where to focus your energy each day. Then maybe you'd think about community. And then maybe if none of these things are working for you, you also add in therapy. <laughs> mm. And that's, that's the beauty of your book, that you have such a buffet of, of different tools. So that's obviously we can all customize our own toolkit or what works for you, for you. But also acknowledging that some things won't work on some days. And sometimes you've gone through all the tools you have in your toolbox and you still feel like shit. Yeah. And that is normal, unfortunately. Yeah. I wish I could shield my, my clients from that uh, and myself. But it's, it's a normal part. And that's where self-compassion, like you talk about as well, can I give in us a break by saying, this is just really hard. I just feel like shit right now. And it's really hard. I've tried everything. I've tried to ground myself. I've tried mindfulness. I've gone for a walk. I've dunked my head in ice. And I still feel a bit crap. And that's mm -hmm. sometimes when you're saying that, that is that a, a signal or a clue? There's something else that needs to change in your environment that we can't just make these feelings go away. Sometimes with the grounding, something needs to change around us. Well, sometimes we just need to pull the duvet over our head as well and have a good weep, right? Yeah. <laughs> As long as, as long as it's not every day that you're unable to get out of bed for a period of time, then it's okay. But I think once these things start really disrupting your life on a daily basis, that's when additional help needs to be sought. Absolutely. And there's obviously a range there that, you know, all the same feelings that we address in therapy are the same feelings that everyone on the planet experiences. There's just a more of a heightened state of it, you know. The intensity is higher, the duration is longer, yeah. and the frequency is is more, more often that you know have more of those mental health days, and they don't tend to lift, and uh, and the, the intensity of that darkness is is deeper. So I think that's kind of more of a range of well, where our mental health is, rather than either you have it or you don't. Yes. Um, with those classic tick box things that we've been seeing on shared around on Instagram, it's it's much more of a continuum, isn't it? Yes, I agree. Fantastic. There's been so many, so many nuggets of wisdom that you've shared. So there's been lots of stuff. So with everything that you've been doing for the last few weeks, uh, you know, preparing for your book launch and everything, you've got a massive engaged platform on Instagram, you know, you've got a fantastic website, all the stuff, the stuff, the stuff, the stuff that you have achieved that we all, you know, are so proud of the things we have done or the challenges we've overcome. How do you balance that? with switching off or finding rest and recovery? I spend a lot of time by myself in silence. That's normally, the more time I have to spend by myself really shows how kind of overwhelming life is. Um, but generally I make space to go to yoga each day. I have a brilliant circle of friends who are not afraid to be flawed. 
and to talk about their struggles and to support each other. I read a lot, <laughs> but mainly I find people and exercise the best way to cope. Hmm. So it's a lot of balancing that by, by having the intensity of, you know, being in the passion, the purpose of the things you love doing, but then also balancing that with uh, decompressing. Like you said, in the very beginning, you have to decompress to protect your energy, like lying in a dark room sometimes. Well, having a bath with one candle lit is my new thing. <laughs> Yes, I love that. We put in new spotlights in our bathroom because they all went one by one. And my husband put them in very kindly. And I'm like, what? These are horrible. <laughs> it's like you turn the light on and it's just blaring. No. Yeah. It's horrible. So then, yeah, back to the lit candles. The flickering of the uh, of the candle is very, very soothing as well. Yes. Um, and it's something to do there with also the um, the wavelengths of the of the light. Now, obviously, you've got a different... Um, kelvin degree in the in the light of a flickering candle compared to the kelvin that you have of light bulbs a little snippet of information for my for my photography background it's a different intensity to the light it's different warmth to the light so actually your the ceiling lights is is different to daylight or flickering candles so on that note slightly odd trivia that i'm oh, ending with it. it's been so fantastic talking to you about all of these things it's clearly you know, we're seeing your purpose, everything you're passionate about doing. And you've talked a lot about, you know, finding moments to pause and ground. Lastly, let's just think about how do you play so and what's playful and fun and creative for you? Oh, I'm playing all the time. <laughs> um, I honestly feel like my life is full of play. Clothes. Every morning I wear things that bring me joy. I I'm ridiculous with my friends. We are always making jokes or coming up with some new ridiculous harebrained scheme. Um, we're about actually to go like um, on this brilliant canoe trip. I play in yoga when I'm trying to go upside down and I'm very bad at it and I'm falling over. I draw. There's so many different aspects of my life where I'm very playful and I'm very, very lucky, I think, to have found things that really make me laugh and I'm okay with being bad at things. And I can really resonate with that as well. We can kind of hear, for the, for the regular listeners, you can also hear how Soph and I have kind of bounced off each other a little bit today of, of having some jokes and some banter that actually when someone comes in with a playful energy, it is contagious. It brings a light and a joy to others as well. And that's a really nice way of balancing out all the darkness that we also all have within us and around us. So tapping into our joy, putting on that really colorful top that makes you go, yeah, a little bit more sparkly that day can be a really nice way of stepping into some more playfulness so thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest and for anyone who's not read read your book yet then obviously they can order it it's on amazon it's fantastic it's called a manual for being human and uh, it's 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 a big break <laughs> don't get me wrong but it's so easy to read so you won't, don't be daunted by it being uh lots of words think of it you get value free money there's lots of words in there but also, um, I, it is big. Um, it would be worrying if you wrote a book called A Manual for Being Human, it was slim. But you don't, exactly. you don't have to read it from front to back. You know, like, if you do, you'll layer up the information chapter by chapter. But actually, you can use it as a reference guide. Say you're experiencing anxiety, you dip in there. Say your inner critic is loud, you dip in there. Say you've got worries about your attachment relationships, or you've gone through a breakup, or the media is upsetting you, or you're comparing and despairing. You can use it as a reference guide. You do not have to pick it up and start from the beginning and go to the end. Yes, and I think that's really good to clarify that that means that people who feel pressed for time, they might feel, oh, I don't really, don't really want to read a whole manual, but actually, you know, dipping in and out of things and 
reading snippets is a great way of, of picking up new information and just doing one chapter at a time. You may not have to do them in order, you know, be a rebel yeah. and do them in whatever order you want that serves your, your life right now. So the final thing I always ask guests for is what takeaway would you like to give the listeners? That could be either a pressure you want to take off them or a permission you want to give them. What would that be? To recognize that you make sense. I think, you know, a lot of us think there's something wrong with us and that we are unique in our experiences. But actually, whatever you're going through, we could make sense of it. We can understand it. There is nothing wrong with you. There is always, always a reason that you feel or behave the way you do. And there is always, always a way to move forwards, even if that ends up being just changing your relationship to that experience. And you are not alone. Mm. You're not alone in being human. There's quite mm. a lot of us on the planet who are exactly like you with difficult, tricky brains and difficult, tricky life experiences shaping us. Thank you so much for talking so openly about the book and answering all my questions and giving me such a joyful experience in interviewing you. So thank you again. Thank you. Bye. That, my dear listeners, was such a fun episode to record. You can really hear how much energy and joy that Dr. Soph brings to a chat. So I thoroughly enjoyed myself. And I also, I hope you learned a lot of new things, helping you to learn skills to manage being human across the lifespan. And Sophie's book is really brilliant in that sense that you can just dip into it, take a chapter or a section or a paragraph here and there that applies to what you're currently facing in your life. Because you remember from hearing this podcast before that I am very passionate about helping us be more compassionate with ourselves for all the struggles we go through in our life, light and dark. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I started the session with Sophie by guiding her through a self-compassionate break. And I've recorded this for you guys as well, so you can download it for free by going to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash break. So that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash break and grab this five minute download and just try to give yourself a self-compassionate break. If you want to buy Sophie's book, then it's Sophie Mort and the book is called A Manual for Being Human. You can follow her on all the social media channels as Dr. Soph. I will put that in the show notes so you can find the link to buying the book and to finding her on social media. And until I see you next time, do try to take good care of yourselves. And remember, it's okay to be human. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www thethomasconnection.co.uk 
forward slash calm. So that's the thomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. You can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.